Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Taha Lokandwala, Deputy Personal Finance Editor at Investors Chronicle. And joining me today are Emma Adjaman, Personal Finance Writer, and James Tom, Manager at Aberdeen New Dawn Investment Trust. Welcome, everyone. Global markets are not having the best of time in 2018. So far this year, emerging markets and Asia in particular have seen a lot of volatility. This has been associated with uncertainty over the Chinese economy and trade wars stemming from the US. This week, negative investor sentiment on Turkey and Argentina, stemming from the country's currency issues and sharp rises in interest rate, has started spreading to other emerging markets across the globe and including Asia. This combined with some slightly worrying Chinese economic data to make it a difficult week for Asian stocks in general. James, your, your trust invests in Asia-Pacific ex-Japan. Could you explain um, to us why the issues in Turkey and Argentina have started affecting stocks in your region? Well, I think it's uh, certainly creating a degree of negative sentiment ac- across emerging markets. Uh, we've seen this play out before um, multiple times as a uh, currency crisis in one emerging market um, then spreads across, uh, across the globe uh, to other emerging markets. So I think there's naturally a a concern that this may uh, be history repeating itself and and hence some caution when it comes to Asian markets. Uh, And we're seeing that uh, most uh, evidently in Indonesia and in India at the moment where the currencies are under pressure. Um, Having said that, and and I don't want to say that uh, this time it's different, um, but but I think there are uh, reasons to uh, be somewhat uh, positive that uh, the economic fundamentals uh, in Asia are in much better health today than they were uh, say five years ago, when we had the uh, the taper tantrum and uh, some wobbles on the currencies, then um, so when you look at the macroeconomic indicators, um, whether it's uh, current account deficits, fiscal deficits, inflation, uh, FX reserves, um, all of those measures um, have improved in Asia in recent years, and the result of that is that I think the Asian economies are far less vulnerable today than uh, than they were a few years ago and really should be better placed to withstand uh, this sort of uh, pressure on their currencies. Okay, um, given that we've kind of seen this uh, this kind of stuff before, obviously we can't predict the future, but how, how bad can it get for, for those who are holding Asian equities and what should they be doing while this is going on? Obviously, it's, it's quite nerve-wracking to, to see markets as volatile. Yes, and there are, I mean, I, I think it's not just the contagion issue. Um, there are other headwinds uh, uh, that are buffeting the Asian markets currently. And you mentioned uh, in your opening remarks about the uh, the trade tensions on China, the stronger US dollar and, uh, and slowing growth. Uh, so there are multiple reasons to be uh, cautious. Um, having said that, I think uh, when you drill down into the underlying fundamentals in Asia, there's no need to panic. Um, uh, and I've talked already about some of the, the sort of macroeconomic indicators, um, but down at the corporate level, and, and um, we spend our lives looking at the Asian companies, um, actually earnings growth is still pretty healthy. Um, you know, we're just concluding the first half uh, earnings season and we're seeing kind of mid-teens uh, rates of growth uh, in, in earnings. Um, that's pretty attractive. And I think if you are selective in Asia in terms of your stock uh, picks, there is uh, there are still very attractive uh, opportunities uh, where growth is good, balance sheets are still healthy and valuations are getting cheaper. Okay, um, so it's an interesting point because I think yeah, as, as you said, the the kind of macroeconomic 
situation and, 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 and this contagion is kind of masking some, some decent fundamentals. Um, but when you compare this year compared to, say, 2016, 2017, there were some really, really strong returns from, from Asia. You know, 60% of the course of 2016, 2017. Have we seen the best of Asian returns for this cycle, at least? Um, this year, obviously, is very different. The markets are down so far year to date. Yes, and the world has changed. Um, you know, I think uh, many of these um, headwinds that we've talked about are, uh, you know, their origins lie in uh, in the US and with President Trump's uh, uh, policies, uh, those are um, that weren't there in 16 and 17, or at least not to the same extent. Um, so Asian markets were able to come back quite nicely this year because of some of those uh, policy changes. It's It's harder going. So I don't think, you know, we're not going to see another 16 and 17 type returns, uh, which were quite exceptional years. But uh, I don't think uh, that's to say that the sort of long term returns outlook for Asia is is uh, uh, entirely diminished. Uh, as I say, if if you believe through uh, through the sort of longer term that uh, returns, stock market returns should mirror or map earnings. Um, and I, as I've said, earnings growth is still pretty healthy. Uh, I think uh, there are still decent returns to be made in Asia. But uh, certainly for the, this year, it is it is harder going and, and it is volatile. And uh, um, we're not going to have quite the same uh, uh, you know, uh, high returns that we have enjoyed in the last couple of years. Okay, great. Two of the biggest economies in the region are, of course, China and India, also the two largest regional allocations in your fund. Both have some kind of significant issues to overcome in terms of the kind of the economy, in terms of China and politically in India. Um, so can you talk us through what we might see in future in terms of these individual countries and how this might translate to intervolatility and returns? Well, let me take uh, China first, because um, uh, that's uh, front and center of the, the, the current sell-off in, in Asian markets, and uh, that's being really driven by the, the trade tensions. That's understandably causing a lot of uh, uncertainty. It's bad for sentiment. Um, but again, um, I'm coming back to the fundamentals. Uh, and if you look at what the actual impact of these tariffs uh, uh, may be on the Chinese economy, it's perhaps not as bad as the, the market uh, uh, sell-off would uh, would suggest. Um, I mean, and this is not uh, our data. I'm drawing on sort of IMF and, and uh, third-party data, but the estimates uh, are that uh, if all the tariffs currently on the table get implemented, that may knock about 50 uh, basis points or half a percent off uh, China's aggregate demand. And bear in mind, you know, China is still growing at six, six and a half percent. So um, China can certainly absorb that sort of hit. It's also letting the trading bounds on its currency uh, widen, and we're seeing a depreciation in the uh, in the local Chinese uh, currency, and and that may end up offsetting quite a bit of the pressure uh, from from higher tariffs. Um, and then uh, down at the uh, corporate level again, uh, and I always bring it back to that. There's actually fairly little direct exposure to the U.S. Uh, economy uh, in terms of sales and earnings in the listed uh, space in China. Uh, it's something well less than. 2% of sales, I think, uh, by some estimates, are, are direct to the US. So there's a degree of insulation there. And that, I think, is why we're continuing to see um, very healthy earnings growth in China as well. Uh, and from our perspective as stock pickers, uh, we've, been, um, we've been acting uh, on that opportunistically to buy more of the companies that we like in China uh, and just to increase our uh, exposure to that market because we believe that uh, the long-term story structurally in China uh, 
uh, is very much uh, intact. It's still, you know, a, a market where you're seeing rising wealth levels, um, a lot of excitement in the technology and internet sector, uh, as you're seeing elsewhere in the world. Uh, but China is p- a pioneer in many respects in that uh, sector. So, um, so there are still very attractive investment opportunities, and, and we're, uh, we're 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 very focused on those. So uh, that that's China. Turning to India. Actually, so India, it's important to sort of dissect the returns a little bit there. Um, I mentioned earlier that uh, the uh, that India and Indonesia has have been uh, bearing the brunt uh, of the contagion kind of uh, issue in terms of currency weakness. Um, so the uh, Indian rupee has depreciated uh, quite substantially uh, in uh, recent uh, months, but the domestic stock market returns have actually been very healthy. So in in US dollar or, or sterling terms, perhaps you're you're not getting the overall return because of the currency impact, but. Uh but the fact that the domestic market has been um, pretty healthy tells you something about the the corporate uh, uh, earnings outlook and um, and the sort of positive things that are going on at, at an economic level uh, in India still. Um, the there are a couple of headwinds looming. You know, the higher oil price isn't great for India. Uh, it's a net importer of oil, uh, so then that may trigger a little bit of inflationary pressure. Uh, but the central banks responding to that with higher interest rates. The country goes to the polls next year, um, and uh, the outcome of that uh, is looking less uh, straightforward than it uh, had done a few no, quarters back. Indeed. Um, this is actually one of the things I wanted to bring up. Is there, I mean, obviously, a lot of the Indian returns we've seen over the last few years have come from kind of Modi's policies. Um, there is now an increasing risk that Modi will not win the next election. Is that something that is on your radar and concerns you in terms of the outlook for Indian stocks? To some extent, um, I mean, we we build our portfolios from the from the bottom up. So we're we're really just trying to ev- uh, to find good quality companies uh, and uh, invest in those, hopefully at reasonable valuations. And and uh, you've always got to keep an eye on the on the politics and the macro environment. Um, but uh, but for us, it's the companies that are the core focus. And India is still for us a, a great hunting ground, and we find plenty of good quality companies there, which is why we maintain a sizable uh, position in India. But yes, I think where the sort of politics and the market kind of uh, mix here is that uh, it looks as if the sort of political risk around the election isn't being priced into the Indian market. Yet, as as I said, it's been really very resilient, um, still posting positive returns. So I think as we get nearer to the general election, um, and we've got various state elections ahead of that, we may see a little bit of a, um, of a, uh, a pullback um, as uh, expectations kind of adjust. You know, that's probably not, not a bad thing as far as it goes for Indian equities. They are fairly fully valued at the moment. Valuations, certainly relative to the rest of the region, are, are quite high. So to take a little bit of heat out of the market may, uh, may not be, uh, may not be all, all bad. No, definitely. No, it's been interesting to, to hear your views on, on this region. So Obviously, you mentioned that the the long-term fundamentals for a lot of the region remains quite strong. Thinking slightly more short-term, which I appreciate isn't isn't your game, but do you think for the rest of the year things might settle down in, in, in the coming months or should we... Should we be belting up for more volatility and perhaps even using this as an opportunity to, to buy if, 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 if that works? 
Well, it's uh, it's always difficult to uh, predict, uh, and, and really we're not in the game of uh, predicting where markets are going to go. Um, and I think in this case, if you look at what the those those headwinds are, um, so much of it, as I, as I said earlier, is being um, driven by uh, by U.S. policy and, and President Trump and. You know, uh, everyone's trying to second guess him and understand uh, what's coming next. It may be, you know, maybe the trade tensions with China will be wrapped up tomorrow when we'll have a sort of NAFTA type uh, deal uh, that that is done uh, overnight uh, and and all of this will sort of uh, disappear. Um, Or maybe it'll roll on for another six months, a year. Um, It's very difficult to to uh to, to sort of uh, predict uh, i think the base case has to be that uh, uh the volatility will continue but i i do see that as a as a buying opportunity and as i said that is what we've been doing um buying into uh companies that uh we've had on our radar for some time and have always liked but perhaps you know the valuations have been too uh, too inflated um so this has given us an opportunity to to buy into to new stocks uh and also just to buy more of what we like already in the portfolio the the sort of highest quality names that we have there and uh, just build up those positions at attractive valuations okay great thanks very much so elsewhere this week we have some news that terry smith founder of the imaginatively named fundsmith is planning to launch a new investment trust this would be addition to his open-ended fund, Fundsmith Equity, which I'm sure many listeners are familiar with, uh, and his Fundsmith Emerging Markets Equity Investment Trust. Mr. Smith is, uh, is known for his slow and steady approach to investing, buying quality companies and holding them for a long time, low turnover, low trading, and it has worked if you look at his performance. So, Emma, what has, uh, what has this new investment trust got in store for us? Well, interestingly, Taha, this new investment trust is going to be focusing more on small and mid caps, because as you mentioned, Fundsmith tends to focus much more on large caps. And so this fund is going to be focusing on global small caps, and they're defining those as between $500 million and $15 billion. So there's quite a lot of scope for the kind of companies they can choose. But it will be investing on the same kind of strategy that Mr. Smith has used in his other funds, namely that quality-focused buy-and-hold strategy. Um, It's going to be quite a concentrated level of stocks as well, up to about 40 stocks initially when the fund launches. But, you know, crucially, this fund, of all it's going to have Mr. Smith's name on it, it's called Smith's Sons Investment Trust. It's not actually going to be run by him. It's going to be run by two managers who've joined his firm in the last year or so. Oh, so that's quite interesting. So it's uh, something slightly different from Fundsmith there. Interesting that it's a, a slightly concentrated portfolio of only 25 to 40 stocks as well. That's uh, interesting to see how that works. What about charging? It sounds like Fundsmith are going to be doing something slightly different. Could you explain a bit more about this, please? Yeah, that's right. Normally, trusts tend to price their annual management charges on net asset value of the trust. But this trust is actually going to be doing that on its the market capitalization of the trust. And the annual management charge is going to be 0.9% and it's going to be based on the share price. So that is quite a, a different way of doing things. And some of the analysts I spoke to said that in some senses it could be act as an incentive for the trust not to trade on a discount as it well, it's going to align um, shareholders with, with the managers to make sure that that doesn't happen. But... On the negative side of things, you know, if a trust is going to trade on a premium, which is likely given um, Mr. Smith's strong following among investors, that potentially is going to make it more expensive than um, if it was priced on net asset value. That's quite interesting. Yeah, the, the strong following there is a quite an interesting point. Um, his emerging market equity trust has underperformed, yet still manages to trade on a premium. So something to watch out for with this one as well. 
so why now? What's what's prompted Terry Smith and Fun Smith to to do this, and uh, how do we, how do we think it will do? Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely going to be popular. I certainly imagine it getting off the ground. I mean, I, I think that the reason for this, a couple of points, Fun Smith Equity is growing to be an absolutely massive fund, eighteen billion pounds of assets, and that means that it's actually much harder for the fund to invest in smaller companies because even one percent position in any of these companies is going to be 180 million, um, which is pretty much going to take up the majority of shares of a, of a smaller company. And Mr. Smith thinks that actually um, small and medium sized companies tend to do a lot better in terms of their overall performance. So this is an opportunity that he wants to tap with this new investment trust which as it's going to be investing in smaller companies and it's not so big, will be able to take advantage of global opportunities in small mid caps. So just to give you an idea of the kind of performance that we've seen from um, these types of stocks, over the past 10 years, the MSCI World Small and Mid Cap Index has returned 230%, and that's compared to 185% by the MSCI World Index. So, you know, there is a strong trend of small and medium-sized companies doing better. Okay. Um, yeah, it's certainly interesting. It's, it's interesting because I think most small-cap managers that we, we are familiar with tend to be quite active with their holdings, uh, and they change things as prices are quite volatile. They also own a lot of stocks to diversify risk and liquidity, but I suppose... That's where the investment trust can come into its own. What do, what do you think about this? Is there a risk he's overstretching himself? Um, something not in his forte? I mean, Neil Woodford launched a small cap trust and that hasn't worked out very well. So Yeah, I mean, um, so far at least not so well for Woodford patient capital. But, you know, the clues in the title. So, you know, let's give him a little bit longer potentially. Um, it's an interesting question. I think that uh, it, it's it's notable that this trust is not directly going to be run by um, Terry Smith. He's got a couple of managers who seem to have more expertise in small cap investing, but he will still be involved with the trust. He says he's going to be giving them advice and support. And actually, um, something else which I think our listeners will find interesting is that he's actually committing £25 million of his own money um, to launch this trust. So, you know, he really is putting his money where his mouth is. Um, as to whether or not he's overstretching, I mean, it's it's one to watch, but I, I suddenly think it's an interesting proposition and I'm sure it's going to be popular. Okay, great. Uh, and what about the analysts? What's the consensus coming from them? Um, consensus is, you know, pretty similar, actually, that they do think that this trust is going to be serving an interesting space because there's not too many... Um, trust focusing on global smaller and mid cap companies so in that sense it's going to be interesting obviously terry smith's um investment style has proved very successful so they think that's also going to be a, a key positive for the trust and this um different proposition with the fees should also be an interesting feature which they think investors are likely to like okay great well thank you very much for that Emma. Moving on, something slightly different this week. We're going to talk about annuities. Emma's been been looking at these. These are insurance products which you buy with your pension pots. Um, either that could be a self-invested personal pension, a SIP, or, or a defined contribution screen provided by your employer. And what it does, it gives you guaranteed income for life. You basically take your DC pot, you purchase an annuity, and it almost converts it into a DB pot, I suppose is the easiest way to explain this. They were legally mandated for most savers before 2015, and then the government changed the rules. And since their popularity has plummeted and the market has shrunk... 
it's um, it kind of makes sense most people prefer the flexibility you can get away from annuities once you buy them and convert them into annuity you can't you can't change that you can't go back also the level of income you've got from annuities has been pretty poor over the past decade um this is because they are priced using interest rates which of course we all know have been quite low for quite some time However, though, the, it's interesting because there's a lot of market research out there about what people want from pensions. Uh, and when you ask them to design a pension product from scratch, they actually end up designing something quite close to annuities. Um, so the benefits seem to have been overlooked by quite a lot of people. I mean, you've looked at the current market. Um, is there any reason for this popularity to perhaps change? Well, a key reason for the potential change is that we've seen a interest rate rise in the last few months. And if we're likely to get further rate rises, that would potentially have a increase on gilt yields, which are used to price annuities. And therefore, we might get slightly better rates. And as you say, investors of all in some senses, they don't like the brand of annuity. They actually do quite like what an annuity gives, which is guaranteed income for life. And actually, the number of providers in this market of all number has shrunk. They've actually got more competitive in terms of what they're offering investors as much lower spread between what's available. So arguably, the, the market's improved a little bit as well. Sounds like they can be used then. As you see, most people prefer some flexibility. So um, is there a way... Perhaps people should be thinking about using annuities in a flexible way? Yeah, I think the, um, a key thing to do is maybe to consider using an annuity to cover um, some of your costs in retirement. So rather than taking your whole pension pot and buying an annuity with, with the whole of it, you could use part of a pot um, to cover fixed expenses that you're going to have in retirement. So if you've got a smaller pot, for example, under £50,000, um, it's not going to be that cost effective to go into income drawdown as the costs of that are quite high relative to what you're going to get out of it. So in that sense, it might be a good idea to use an annuity. Okay, great. Uh, and what about the opposite? There's a reason annuity sales have dropped off so much. So there must be times when it's a bad idea. When, when should we not be using them? Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you've got, you know, really large pots, which could do well in income drawdown, that's something to consider. Also, if you've got lots of other sources of guaranteed income. So if you've got defined benefit, final salary pension schemes, that you might not need more guaranteed income, in which case it's better to use your DB pension schemes to provide that, the expenses, fixed expenses you have in retirement, and maybe to use income drawdown so that you've got more flexibility in general um, of how you spend your money. Another interesting reason why in the news you might not be so good is because if you plan to pass on your pension to your heirs when you die annuities are not very good for that because basically once you die the income that you get goes with you unless you've specifically selected some death benefits and in contrast if you're going to choose a defined contribution pension you are actually able to pass this on to your heirs so that could be another reason when an annuity is not so good thanks for that emma that's really interesting also emma has very kindly researched some useful tips on the best ways to make sure you get the most value out of your annuity and also looked at the, what providers are offering at the moment so some comprehensive data in the magazine and on the website so please go and take a look at that Unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week, but please don't forget to check out this week's issue online or in print. You can read more about everything we've talked about today, also our usual fun tips, portfolio clinic, some companies news, and there's a feature on investing in Japan. But that's all for today. Thank you very much for listening. Have a good weekend.